Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. William Butler Yeats is one of Ireland's most celebrated and widely read poets. Born in 1865, Yeats turned to writing as a teenager and the poem we are featuring today, The Second Coming, was published in 1921. As a poet, Yeats was inspired and influenced by an array of poets before him. These included French symbolists like Arthur Rimbaud and the romantic poets of earlier generations such as Keats, Wordsworth and Blake. Yeats was also captivated and inspired by Irish folklore and mythology, which galvanised his desire to articulate a uniquely Irish voice in our world. A voice that called persistently for Ireland's sovereign independence from England throughout his career. Mysticism and an ongoing interest in occult material was also formative in Yeats's poetic outlook. The Second Coming contains many hallmarks of this mystical interest. For instance, the poem refers in its first stanza to the image of a Gaia, a symbol that Yeats forwarded in his book called A Vision. This particular book outlines what Yeats referred to as his system, a complicated mix of different philosophies and cultural ideas. And within this system in society, Yeats believed in a kind of collective unconscious, or the spiritus mundi referred to in the poem, from which powerful images and symbols could be gathered by poets. His wife at the time of the writing of this poem was Georgie Hyde Lees, who was believed by Yeats to be a skilled psychic medium who spiritually inspired many of his poetic ideas. So let's take a listen to the poem, shall we? I present you with The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats. The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats Turning and turning in the widening gyre The falcon cannot hear the falconer Things fall apart The centre cannot hold Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. But now I know that 
20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast! Its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. While this poem makes a point of not being too specific about its historical context, experts consider the date that the poem was written as being important. It was composed between the two world wars, not long after millions of soldiers were slaughtered in the trenches of Europe. In other words, the horrific loss of life following World War I cast a long shadow over Yeats's outlook, a shadow that many feel is deeply embedded in the lines of this poem. Added to this, many critics have seen this poem as being rather prophetic due to the fact that the figure of Adolf Hitler yet to shoot to prominence on the world stage so clearly matches the poem's idea of the worst people who are full of passionate intensity. Nevertheless, the historical context is skillfully camouflaged by Yeats as he aimed to write a poem with a larger historical scope that could be held up to the world more universally across multiple generations. Indeed, the second coming speaks deeply into our current political and environmental predicament today and makes for chilling reading. In its discussion of what looks like an end-of-the-world scenario, the poem is partly a work of eschatology, that is, writing about the apocalypse. As such, the poem joins a historical tradition that stretches back thousands of years in time to the Assyrians and the Egyptians. Even more relevant to the poem's interest in eschatology is its fundamentally Christian underpinnings. The Second Coming, though not an idea exclusive to Christianity, is a strong central idea in that tradition. For instance, the 20 centuries referred to in line 19 and the use of Bethlehem point to the poem's Christian roots, as both refer to the birth of Jesus Christ, which was the first coming. A lot of these Christian views are contained in the New Testament's book of Revelation, where Jesus is predicted to return a second time to usher in God's kingdom of peace. However, this poem is clearly a kind of corruption of that prophecy, predicting a foul beast to arrive on the horizon rather than the promised Messiah. It is a dark and disturbing prediction indeed. So I want to do something a little bit different in this podcast and do a more traditional line-by-line analysis of the poem. This may make the podcast a little bit longer this week, but let's forge ahead anyway and start with lines one and two, which read, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. The poem opens with a mysterious metaphor. A falconer searches for his lost falcon in the widening gyre. The bird itself can't hear the falconer. Here it's important to know a little bit about Yeats's system. Yeats conceived of history as a movement of gyres, kind of a spinning vortex, where one phase of history spirals widely into another with unforeseen consequences. 
The poem points to the 20th century as being one gyre of history, emerging traumatically out of the previous one. This new era is altogether harder to define, but it looks ominous, losing some of its former foundations, such as its Christian moral underpinnings. The idea of the falconer, the human, losing control over his environment, represented by the falcon, symbolises this shift from one phase of history to the next. Yates uses a repetition of words in these first few lines to create a sense of disorientation as the falcon turns repeatedly in search of its master. The repeated word turning of the echoey falcon and falconer suggests repeated and increasingly desperate movements. The weighty consonants created by the N sounds of the words in these lines creates a sense of dizziness. Just listen to the Ns, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. The poem has now introduced its main theme as humanity's loss of control over its civilizations. Welcome back. So here's lines three to six in the poem. Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The well-known third line expands on the first two lines, image of loss of control. Things, a collective noun that is deliberately vague, are falling apart. The centre cannot hold, argues that these things are truly on the edge of breakdown. Added to this disturbing announcement are the words mere and anarchy, which has now been loosed upon the world. Along with the blood-dimmed tide, an image that may be either associated with the book of Revelation or as a reference to the bloody tide of destruction left in the wake of World War I. After the pause that follows the word loosed, the speaker connects things to a loss of innocence. Innocence here might relate to our society's childish faith that it places in notions of civility, progress, religion and the moral order of our world, particularly the idea that humanity is on a perpetual journey of improvement in all facets of life. In fact, the line calls into question whether or not this innocence ever really existed, suggesting it was a ceremony, a showy parade instead of a sincere commitment to true goodness. Now on to lines 7 to 8. The best lack all conviction, and the worst are full of passionate intensity. The last lines here of stanza 1 create a vivid contrast between the best and the worst. The mention of conviction and passionate intensity makes it clear that these opposites refer specifically to human traits. The best people lack the courage of their convictions in the face of the looming collapse, while the worst are in their element. Though the poem does not specify what makes people the best or the worst, it seems likely that this contrast relates to a person's moral integrity. And we don't have to think for too long before certain politicians on the world stage pop into our heads as embodiments 
of these qualities, do we? Donald Trump, for instance, anyone? All in all, the poem's subject matter forwarded in the first stanza is really large and overwhelming. It's a commentary on the immense stretch of our human history. So it makes sense that the poem doesn't tie itself too explicitly to specific historical references. In fact, early drafts did mention the Russian Revolution and specific politicians, but Yeats revised these references out of the poem. As a result, the poem has the deliberately strange sense of being outside time, making it feel as relevant to the present day as it was to 1921. So here's lines 9 to 13 from the second stanza. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming? Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. The poem shifts at this point as the speaker becomes more personally involved. The use of the subjective word surely makes it almost seem as though stanza 1 was a news bulletin while stanza 2 is the viewer's response. In light of this kind of news report in stanza one, the speaker seems to draw the conclusion that it is high time for revelation and for the second coming. The repeated use of the word surely has an air of desperation about it, and so the speaker is afraid that his hope in salvation isn't actually attainable. At this point, the speaker receives an alternative prophecy to the book of Revelation from Spiritus Mundi, which Yeats understood as our collective unconscious or world spirit. In line 13, the poem reveals that it is written from a first-person perspective, with the vision troubling my sight. In the build-up to this new vision, the poem uses long assonance, A, O and U sounds to foreshadow the beast's arrival and to slow the lines down. These vowel sounds create this scary feeling of something coming into life. Just listen to the A's and the O's and U's used in these lines. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Lines 13 to 17 are as follows in the poem. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all around it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The speaker here is describing the vision that arrived from the Spiritus Mundi. It is a grotesque and heavily symbolic apparition of a creature coming into life. First, the speaker establishes the location, a non-specified desert somewhere. This evokes an inhospitable landscape, a somewhere that might be home to something inhuman. The alliterative S sounds bring the sounds of the desert to life, suggesting winds blowing across the landscape. Listen again to the S's. Troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, 
Then the enjambment from lines 13 into lines 14 allow the creature to suddenly impose itself on the poem, muscling into the reader's view with no punctuation as warning. This creature is a hybrid of a man's head and a lion's body, but it's also just a shape, a term that gives the vision a deliberate vagueness. Notably, the poem doesn't name this beast. Of creatures already established in myth and folklore, this one probably most resembles a sphinx or a manticore. Neither has very hopeful connotations, with the sphinx typically portrayed as a merciless monster and the manticore's name literally meaning man-eater. There's no single way to interpret Yeats's beast, but perhaps it signals the way in which civilization and human progress have been a kind of illusion. The man-head of the beast could represent human intellect and potential, but the body, the thing that takes action, is a beast, likely representing human beings' tendency towards irrational violence and chaos. And even if the creature is intelligent, it's still fearsome and merciless. While line 14 gives a sense of the beast's basic physical appearance, line 15 hones in more on the expression as a way of discussing its character. The beast has a blank look on its face, as pitiless as the sun. This suggests that it's cold and unforgiving, incapable of showing empathy, which perhaps ties in with the suggestion of a collapse of morality in the stanza. In lines 16 and 17, the speaker describes how the beast is slowly coming to life, moving its slow thighs, as though its time has finally come. The consonants of the owl sounds, with the words slow, while, all, and real, within the words of these lines, reinforces this sense of slow movement. Lines 18 to 20 go like this. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. Line 18 marks the end of the speaker's vision. The darkness that drops describes the beast disappearing from view, but is also more generally suggestive of darkness being drawn over humanity as it undergoes this seismic historical shift. The next main shift in the poem comes in this section of the poem. Having experienced their vision, the speaker now feels they possess new knowledge about the fate of the world. It's here in line 19 that the poem more explicitly ties itself to the 20th century, with the phrase 20 centuries of stony sleep clearly alluding to the calendar system that starts with the year of Christ's birth. But now this sleep has been irreversibly disturbed, vexed into a nightmare. That is, some force has been angered, perhaps by humanity's behaviour or perhaps just as part of the natural historical cycle of the Gaias. The poem essentially becomes a prophecy at this point, and part of its power comes from the way its general predictions could apply to many different specific situations. For example, the poem could be read as a kind of subconscious prediction of further global conflict, i.e. World War II, or it could align equally well with 21st century concerns like climate change. The rocking cradle in line 20, of course, is a clear allusion to the birth of Christ. 
The second coming is meant to be a kind of rebirth. And the cradle indicates that indeed something is being born. But what the poem seems to predict is a far cry from the heroic homecoming of Jesus. The final two lines of the poem are as follows. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. In the poem's final lines, the speaker hints at the future consequences of this ominous situation that the poem has described so far. Whatever rough beast is being woken here will be the herald of a new era, one inspired by the misery and suffering described in the first stanza. The poem suggests that the beast has been waiting a long time to be awoken. Its hour has come at last. And that it's only now that conditions are right for its arrival. All of this amounts to a grotesque perversion of the Christian second coming. The beast in the poem is coming specifically in place of Jesus, signalling an end to Christian values and ways of life. The poem suggests that perhaps mankind doesn't get the second coming it hopes for, but rather it gets the one that it deserves. So that's it for this week's episode. The Second Coming is a deeply ambiguous poem, Indeed, Yeats revised out specific cultural references from the poem before its publication. But there's no mistake that this is a bleak vision of the future of humankind, one which presents morality as a kind of collective dream that is now turning into a nightmare. Next week, to balance out this pessimism, we'll look at a far more hopeful poem by T.S. Eliot, The Journey of the Magi, which gives a very different take on the birth of Jesus. We'll finish by listening one last time to the poem. I'll see you next time. The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats Turning and turning in the widening gyre The falcon cannot hear the falconer Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man 
a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.